0: Welcome to Practically Political. Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Dave Spencer.
1: And I'm Carrie Sheffield. Happy New Year. Let's get right to it, Dave. No rest for the weary. So there was a new study out a few weeks ago from Axios, the media company with Generation Lab, and they found that young Democrats are far more likely to to despise the other party than young Republicans. I also found some similar research from trends uh, against Republicans that Democrats are far more intolerant of Republicans, uh, according to the Cato Institute by a Uh, you know, PhD researcher from UCLA, she found the same thing. Um, And then we've also seen hostility toward conservatives at college campuses nationwide. So I just want to get your thoughts on this because I know the left always claims that our democracy is under attack, but the word democracy, its root is called demos, and demos means people. So if millions of liberals refuse to speak with and feel concern for millions of conservative people, even though the liberals claim to be enlightened and tolerant, who is the actual threat to democracy?
0: Well, I'm glad you brought that up, because to me, this is another false equivalency. What I mean by that is, yes, I have seen surveys where slightly more, I think it was 45 to 41 percent of Democrats hate Republicans than Republicans hate Democrats. And yes, you have intolerance on college campness and wokeness and all that. But it's a small pittance. Okay, there's one thing it's one thing to complain about your opponents to say you hate them to, you know verbally say oh I don't the election wasn't legitimate all this stuff it's another to actually try to overturn a free and fair election and send a mob on the Capitol to to basically overthrow the US government and so yes you know talk is bad but again the equivalency I use Hillary Clinton said well he, that you told Joe Biden don't accept the election well Hillary Clinton uh, conceded the night of the election to Trump. And the problem is what caused this whole thing is for the first time ever, the loser does not accept the winner of the outcome for a presidential election. You and all reasonable conservatives have admitted that Biden won the election fairly, but Mr. Soar Loser won't accept it. And so he's unleashed all this where people think that not only should um, is violence appropriate, but that you know 15% of Republicans actually think that Trump should do whatever he needs to reinstate himself as president. So, and again, you know, AOC is, is way out there, but she's not calling her colleagues communists. You know, Rashida Tlaib is dreadful, but she's not posting pictures of her colleagues being murdered. So, again, I think it's a false equivalency, but your response.
1: Yeah, I think that you are homing in on a very small group of people. There are only about 700 people who were arrested on January 6th, um, what, as opposed more than to half Republican massive, of- structural. Hey, All right, sorry, what? I didn't interrupt you. Uh, True. I'm just saying that the, the actions of a few violent, terrible people on January 6th does not uh, speak for massive structural Uh, you know, intolerance. And this goes beyond just, you know, oh, I don't like them. This is what these studies found were things like, I will not work for someone. I will not be friends with them. I will not shop at their business. So we're talking about real impact on real people's lives across an entire country, as opposed to a few wackadoodles on January 6th who didn't actually, so the word insurrection is, is, technically incorrect because they didn't have any sort of military plan to throw over the the government. I mean, everything they did was heinous and horrible. And it was just an incredibly dark day. And I know we're coming up on the anniversary here right now. So, you know, we're talking about it. And I think it's important to talk about it and to not shy away from how evil it was. But at the same time, I think to put it in perspective, um, you know, the, the fact that the U.S. Constitution does say that the state legislatures are the ones who have control over the elections. It is not the state election boards. It is not unelected bureaucrats. It is the state legislatures. So a lot of people were very angry that a lot of these court cases were dismissed on standing, not on the merit. And so that's why a lot of people were frustrated because they had very legitimate questions. And so I think uh, to lump people who have legitimate questions with a few. Uh, very illegitimate marauders is a disservice, and again, it's a, it's a, it's a red herring away from the massive uh, systemic problems we have of intolerance by the left.
0: Well, again, well, we you know we've already debated January six and you know what what it was, so we're not going to rehash that. We don't have the time, but I'll simply say again, there's a difference between saying that you hate someone. There's a difference between refusing to talk to them, but you don't have sixty percent of a party claiming that. Uh, the election was was illegitimate. You know, you never had uh that many percentage of Democrats saying that Trump wasn't duly elected, and people accepted the election, even though they may have griped about it. You also don't have a huge percent of Democrats saying that violence is appropriate. I mean, again, it's just it's just it's just not the same thing. If you look at the numbers, yes, the Democrats may talk a worse game, but it's the walk that counts. And that's where the GOP is is far worse. But Moving on. I would my- say
1: they never, okay.
0: Yeah, but, well, it's okay. No, please respond. This, this is a really good debate.
1: The Democrats never accepted that Trump and, and Hillary herself, even though she conceded, she actually didn't concede. The entire time Trump was in office, there is millions of dollars of taxpayer money spent to prove a false narrative to say that Trump won because of Russian collusion and Russian interference. So, no, I disagree with you in saying the Democrats accept and that they are pro-democracy and that they, uh, you know, don't want to overthrow the election because they absolutely did. They fundamentally uh, tried to say that Donald Trump was at the behest of the Russian government. And I got news like the, the Trump campaign was ragtag. Steve Bannon even said that it was the island of misfits, that they could barely collude with each other. They, there was no evidence that there was collusion with Russia. And yet, and yet for four years, that was the central narrative of the Democrat Party and millions and tens of millions of Democrats still believe it.
0: Well, again, Paul Manafort was, I mean, you know, look at the company that people keep. Paul Manafort was giving polling data, okay? Was there an exaggeration about Russia? Yes. Was it a hoax? Absolutely not. And that's why the debates we've had about Putin always come down to one irrefutable argument on why on my side. Why, if, if Trump was so bad for Russia, why was Putin pulling for him? Why did Putin do all he could? And maybe the Democrats blew it out of proportion, but he did a lot to help win the Trump win the election. And he was well served when he did it. But back to your point is, again, that's all what you're talking about is all talk. You know, it's a, having hearings is one thing you know, having 125 members of your party vote to not certify an election, that's another thing. Again, it's the talk versus the walk, but I think we'll just have to agree to disagree on that one. But my my question is, very interestingly, you know, 2024, I don't think Trump's gonna run again. That's my opinion, I know some people disagree, but a really interesting topic is, and a great question, I wanna hear your thoughts on it. If he doesn't run, who would you like to see run? And do you think he's going to run? And if he does run, would somebody like a Ron DeSantis challenge him? Fascinating to think about.
1: Yeah, they're all uh, prognosticating questions that are all very interesting. You know, I spent New Year's actually over at the Trump Hotel in Washington, but it will not be named the Trump Hotel for very long. It's I've already heard. been sold okay. and it's going to be rebranded, which to me suggests if you're going to run for president, why would you go ahead and do that in the city uh, where you, you want to come back and work? Uh, because it is a home base and sort of a social hub for, uh, you know, Trump fans. And so uh, so that was a, an interesting trend. I do know from people close to him that I haven't talked to him about it myself, but people around him say he really, really wants to run again. He really does. Um, and they uh, he's waiting to see what happens after the midterms. And if if the Republicans do well in the midterms, he will take that as sort of a, uh, you know, a sign for him to kind of ride that wave. And also the fact that Joe Biden's popularity is continues to sink, um, I think, is more evidence, at least in his mind. Um, But the thing is, you know, if he doesn't run, I think someone like where I live across the river from D.C. and Virginia, um, someone like Glenn Youngkin, I'd love to see Glenn Youngkin run in 2024 And I think he showed the model for being able to talk to the grassroots and to treat them with respect, but also to be serious minded in policy um, and to be focused on, you know, kitchen table issues. And I think what he did by swinging the electorate by 12 points was remarkable. He swung it in 12 points away from what Trump did. You know, Trump lost by 10 points, Mm -hmm. Young Kim won by two points. And so I think he would be someone, uh, you know, and DeSantis would be a very strong contender as well. Um, so I think there are a lot of possibilities. I also like Senator Tim Scott uh, from South Carolina. I think he has a lot of potential. Uh, Christine Nome has been put up as probably more as a running mate. Um, she doesn't come from a very large state, but she does have that star power and the ability to, to really motivate people. So it'll be interesting to see what happens.
0: What about Chris, Chris Christie? You know, the reason I bring this up, because I think one of the unappreciated gaps or I should say gaps, but opportunities for Democrats is about 25 percent of Republicans really feel that January 16th was as bad as I say. And uh, they really do feel that democracy is under threat and that if the Democrats can ever get their act together, which is a very big if, you know. I mean, I, listen, I think one of the differences between you and me is that I hold both parties accountable. And, and, and you know, it, just to give you give an example, New Year's disgrace here, the Democrats' total abandonment on taxing the wealthy. Whether or not you agree with it, that's supposed to be a pledge. And how bad has it gotten? Al Sharpton was lobbying to keep the carried interest loophole, the egregious provision that allows hedge fund managers to get capital gains for rates for the risk-free management of other people's money. So Democrats really need to, to get their act together because once again, if they lose the White House in 24, just like in 2016 and in 2000, it'll be they lost more than the other side won. We shall see. Yeah. All right, see. here's
1: my question for you. Um, so, you know, the looking at what happened with Germany. So I did a a Fulbright Fellowship in Germany. So I love Germany. I love the people. I love the culture. But I personally think that what's happening with the Germans is that they're kowtowing to Putin regarding the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And I think it's unconscionable. This pipeline is going to hurt the Ukrainian people, but it's going to help Putin. And Ukraine is desperate to strengthen their pro-democracy ties. And Germany is kicking them under the bus. But the problem is that Joe Biden is doing nothing to help the Ukrainians. He, is, he has withheld his opposition. And both Barack Obama and Donald Trump put sanctions on the Russians for Nord Stream too. So Biden is actually the aberration from a bipartisan agreement about this. And so to me, it almost seems that... Uh, we- First, Germans are total hypocrites. They love to claim that they're so holy and self-righteous in the conscience of the world, um, but they refuse to pony up their, their necessary spending for NATO, which is a big deterrent to, to, again to Russia. Um, but then so for so my, my question domestically for you is with Joe Biden, why isn't he doing more to push back against the Germans? And why isn't he doing more to help the Ukrainians with this? Because this has a potential to collapse the entire Ukrainian uh, economy um, and, and spike the, um, uh, you know, oil prices and or gas prices, fuel prices for the Ukrainian people. Um, so is is it actually that Joe Biden is the one who's colluding with the Russians here?
0: Well, let me let me take a step back and say a couple things. First of all, the Germans were incredibly irresponsible in the sense that. Because of the, the accident in Japan, the nuclear accident, they got rid of all their nuclear power Now they're and then replaced it with coal-burning power plants, which is really bad. And this is another example, again, as I've said, as someone who really believes in climate change, who thinks the carbon problem is very real, my worst nightmare of states, countries rushing too quickly to adapt and not having a transition plan. Like a lot of these liberals say, oh, well, I'm... I'm I'm pro-climate change, but I'm against fracking and I'm against nuclear energy. You can't have, you have to have a transition plan. And this is a classic example of a country being caught between a rock and a hard place. They just don't have the energy. So they need the gas. And so that's point number one. But point number two is that when you look at what's going on, I agree. The Nord Stream pipeline, I'm surprised that Biden didn't come up and, and oppose it. I think he was probably told by the uh, Germans, look, we really need this. This, please don't do it. So he probably acquiesced to, to Merkel uh, as one of her last requests before she left office. But I think it's bad. And I think, again, you know, we can't do anything to straighten Putin's hand on the Ukrainian thing. It does seem like the message has gotten through to Putin. I don't see. I think this is just posturing because the ramifications, if Putin really did invade Ukraine, would be terrible for him because they're far more well-armed. And that's where Biden, he was slow, but he, they have armed Ukraine. They're better to defend themselves. They're prepared. Plus it would, it would extend Russia thin. It would further marginalize them from the world economy and maybe cut off. not to, They wouldn't get just more sanctions from the US, but they, get, they would get cut off from the rest of the world. So I think, again, it's like Iran with a nuclear weapon. I don't think they're, they really want it. I think they're just trying to get the leverage that pursuing it will get them. So, but I agree, I think that, uh, you know, this is something we need to be stronger. We need to stand up for our allies. You know, we basically said, we made a deal with Ukraine, right? We said, if you get rid of your nuclear weapons, we will defend you. And frankly, we've dropped the ball. You know, we didn't defend them after the Sochi Olympics when they annexed Crimea. Um, and so it, we, yeah, it's been, it's been going on for uh, three administrations. So I, I think we're kind of on agreement in this one. My question to you is, you know, one of the things that worries me, again, getting back to the whole democracy thing, is not that we have crazy presidents. You know, the Constitutional, the founding fathers figured that we would have crazy presidents at some point and presidents who would try to be authoritarian and do things and not abide by the Constitution. What, But they always thought that Congress would be there. So to me, what's not so egregious about this whole thing is Trump or you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates or any of those other nut jobs. It's the Rob Portmans. It's the Susan Collinses. It's the Mitt Romneys. It's the Ben Sasses. It's the Lisa Murkowski's. It's the it's the so-called adults in the room. They're just sitting around and doing nothing, even though you ask them privately, "Yes, this is really a problem. Yes, our democracy is under threat." You know, and sometimes I think a lot of what I consider pragmatic conservatives like you are even afraid to speak out about it. Uh, because you know, it is a risk, and you you can you cannot be totally anti-Trump and acknowledge what's going on. So I really love to get your thoughts on that, because I that's what concerns me. One of the most pressing issues on this whole threat to democracy.
1: Well, again, I guess it's a question of what do you mean by threat to democracy? If so, if you mean Congress people spouting off about things—is that a threat to democracy? Well, that's what Congress people do—they spout off. They're notorious for doing, you know, producing gas. Um, so I—I I don't think that I think the word threat, the words threat to democracy, are thrown around too carelessly. I think words matter, um, and just like just like the you know, democracy dies in darkness—the the motto of the Washington Post—I think that that is hyperbolic and incendiary. Um, I think that rather than really understanding why Trump won, the establishment left and the center left and center right, um, sort of the elites of society, they didn't really take the time to understand. What they did instead was to just reflexively knee-jerk, do everything they could to say orange man bad. Rather than really understanding why did he win and how can we make sure that we actually bring people together? I didn't really see any of that happening. Maybe for like a week or two at the very beginning of the Trump term. So I just think that if if the systems are completely not talking with each other, um, that's a that is a huge problem. And I think just isolating the you know the fringe characters on the right without understanding how they got to be there is a problem um, because. Otherwise, the concerns they have, uh, some of the concerns are very valid, um, but the way they talk about them are just unacceptable and, uh, again, hyperbolic. Um, But I really try to always pivot to policy. That is usually the way that I try to think about what's happening. I I really want to, and I think that's what Yunkin did so well, because he he didn't get dragged down into the conspiracy theory gutter. And I think that any time you allow the, the loudest voice in the room just for the sake of being loud to have impact, that's a problem. And I think that what's interesting, a good example on the left of countering this, just like Youngkin is a good example on the right, is Joe Manchin. So even though the most hyperbolic, throwing, intimidating, you know, people trying to harass him and Christian cinema, he held he held to his policy, to his standards. He said... I have problems with the price tag. I have problems with uh, the the lack of means testing. He really stuck to the, the, the policy. And I think that that resonates with a lot of people. And it certainly resonates with the people of West Virginia. He's doing way better than Congress um, and Chuck Schumer and the National Democrats are in West Virginia. So his seat is safe. Um, and so I just, to me, that's how I think about uh, how do we move forward and how do we acknowledge Uh, legitimate grievances without getting dragged down into the gutter of the rhetoric.
0: Well, we've kind of gone off on several tangents here, but let me respond to each of them. First of all, your response was basically about the 2016 election. I was talking about the 2020 election. But to respond to that, okay, Trump has been the divider in chief. I think once he was elected, because people thought one of the reasons he was elected was a lot of Republicans thought he was a moderate, the most moderate candidate since Eisenhower, and that's one of the ways that he peeled off votes. And so I think a lot of people were optimistic. Okay, this guy says he's a businessman, but he was nothing but the divider in chief. He was president of his base, not of the American people. So if you want to place the blame for division, look at how it started. Look when it started. look at every stat, you look at every study. It started in 2017. But going back to getting along and all that, you know, I do believe that, yes, when, and again, one of the reasons we don't get along is because now you have people that can't agree on the same facts. And again, when did that start? You know, I'm the kind of guy that is is not orange man is all bad. I give Trump credit for the things he did. I give him Trump. I give him credit for the vaccine. I give him credit for getting more people involved, even though it might have been out of enmity, not adulation. I give him credit for doing some good work in the Middle East. You know, there were some good things he did. All right. I you know, and again, growing up in New York, you may not respect Donald Trump, but you can't hate him because he was always entertaining. Right. He was he may have been a con man, but he was our con man. <laughs> so I'm not you know, I, I, I am again as a policy guy. But you look at all these problems that you mentioned, they all started under him. And I just think, yes, have they gotten worse? Yes. Have the Democrats contributed? Yes. Are they are they you know, terrible in a lot of ways in terms of not working and going way to the left? Blowing an opportunity, I mean, Biden, all Biden had to do was not be Trump, have incremental change so people feel that their lives are getting better, and just make people think, you know what, there's a sane person or two governing. But that hasn't happened. He's gone way to the left. He tried to be the next FDR with no mandate and no governing majority. So, yes, but still, look where all this started. It was during Mr. Orange Man. (laughs) Well, I shouldn't say started, but where it really took it off to the next level. But I'll give you the last word.
1: Well, I can agree with you on Joe Biden and the lack of mandate. So let's agree on that.
0: <laughs> All right. Great session, Carrie, as always, I, you know, it's, we're, we're off 2022 with always a spirited debate and darn it, we're a model for the rest of the country. I wish more people would follow in our suits. So that wraps it up for this episode of Practically Political. Once again, Happy New Year, and we will look forward to seeing you again soon.
1: See you there, and make sure to follow us on social media. Happy New Year, everybody.